This is Ideas at the House, and I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, Head of Talks and Ideas at the Sydney Opera House. And we're back with a series of live recordings from Antidote, which is a festival of ideas, action and change. Our opening night guest at Antidote was Ronan Farrow, who's got to be one of the most famous journalists working in the world today. His work over the last 12 months for The New Yorker has been integral to the Me Too movement, which I'd say is likely to be recognised by historians as one of modern feminism's most important events. As a result in part of his reporting, multiple powerful men have been held to account and millions of women have found a voice to call for a stop to sexual harassment and violence. He's also written extensively about politics. His most recent book, The War on Peace, is a defence of international diplomacy. Ronan Farrow is talking with Lenore Taylor, the editor of The Guardian Australia, in the Concert Hall of the Sydney Opera House. Hello, Sydney! What an honour to be here at this beautiful, historic place. I actually have Australian roots. My grandfather, John Farrow, was Australian. I have a number of rebellious Australian cousins in the audience today. Thanks for coming out, guys. I like to think I'm almost Australian because of that. Can I lay claim to that? Did I get an almost? Which makes me uh, able to call home two of the most dysfunctional countries in the world. <laughs> I mean, can't you keep a prime minister for five minutes? Come on, guys. They closed the door 10 minutes ago. You've already gone through three. Seriously, thank you so much for coming for this important and difficult conversation about these issues that are so pressing for all of us. Thank you to everyone at the Opera House, to Louise Heron and Edwina Throsby and Jacqueline Booten. Um, of course, also, thank you to my fellow journalist who I'm going to have this conversation with, Lenore Taylor. I want to take a moment to talk about the profession that both Lenore and I are in. I'm so inspired as I look out across the world and I see journalists in so many countries who embody the spirit of contentious, adversarial investigative reporting that has changed so much for so many of us over the past year. It's in no small part due to those rebellious, adversarial journalists that we're seeing the kinds of changes that Edwina just mentioned, that we are seeing long-held secrets about the abuse of power dragged out into the spotlight, kicking and screaming. And we're hearing long-marginalized voices, including those of sexual abuse survivors. We are grappling around the world and as a culture with our collective failure to create spaces that treat men and women equally and treat everyone with dignity. We are learning a lot about how powerful, despicable men guarded their secrets and were protected by some of our most important institutions for so long, including in the media. I know that hearing about people the way that they are introduced, the way that uh, Edwina just introduced me in that crazy, lavish <laughs> uh, speech that she just gave, it, it can seem easy in retrospect. It can seem like it was always uh, a neat process tied up with a ribbon. And look, I am grateful for every gracious introduction. It's a lot to live up to. I can't make any promises. And I'm still tackling tough stories every day that I take a lot of heat for. So I'm grateful anytime someone says those kind things. But I did want to take a minute to talk about what it's like before the media and conferences and a conversation that is so wonderful and rich processes what you've done and turned it into something without rough edges. What it's like before the moment of impact when you are struggling to break a story and you have no idea whether you're doing the right thing. I've talked a little bit about some of the challenges that I faced while I worked on some of the stories about sexual abuse that have come to prominence in the past year. Um, some of those challenges have been in the news in the past few days. How people I trusted turned on me, and how powerful forces in the media became instruments of suppression. I get asked about that story a lot, and that's fair. Those are vast systems that conspired to keep some of these stories about sexual assault quiet for decades. But that's actually not the story that I want to talk about today. I want to tell you about something simpler and more personal. Something that, without a doubt, of you, without a doubt every one of you has gone through some version of. Uh, whether you are a doctor or a journalist or an engineer or a foreman or a teacher, this is something that I think applies to all of us. The reality is 
I wasn't celebrated. I didn't get the kinds of introductions that I just got when I was trying to crack open these stories. I was a guy doing a job at a time actually when my career was kind of on the rocks and people weren't thinking of me as a success story. And I don't say that for any sympathy. I have had an incredible career and many opportunities and I've done work that I'm proud of and I don't take that for granted. But the reality is I was at a low point and as a result of my tackling those stories as doggedly as I did, that low point got a whole lot lower. There was a moment about a year ago when things almost fell apart completely, when I didn't have the support of my news organization, my contract there was ending, and after I refused to stop reporting a story, I didn't have a new contract to look forward to. My book publisher dropped me. Uh, I found out another news outlet was trying to break the same story and scoop me, and I knew I was falling behind. I didn't know if I would ever be able to break the Weinstein story, and I didn't know if I did somehow manage to get word out, if anyone would care. Because I had been told for months by powerful executives and by people I trusted that this was not a story. And there was a point where I sincerely thought I was gonna let down every brave source who had taken a huge risk to try to see the truth come out. I moved out of my home because I was being followed and threatened. I was facing personal legal threats from a powerful and wealthy man who said he was going to use the best lawyers in the United States to wipe me out and destroy my future. And the reality is, I was scared. I'm not being falsely humble. I was at a moment when I did not know if I would have a job in journalism two months after or ever again. I wish I could tell you I was confident in that moment, and I'm sure Someday, if there's ever a movie version, there'll be an actor who's a lot more handsome than me who sort of like lowers his shades and says like, over my dead body, I'll stop reporting. <laughs> I don't know who that actor is. I think maybe Clint Eastwood or something. <laughs> it's bad casting. But that's not how it was. I was scared. I, I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't know if I was doing the right thing. And that's the point I want to make to you. There were so many people in my ear telling me that this was a mistake, not because they were even necessarily evil, but because in a lot of cases they were just looking at the world and making a rational judgment about things as they were at the time. And they were saying, this isn't worth it. You're going to tell one story at the expense of so many others, best case scenario. They were saying, look, this culture doesn't need this story right now. And there was no evidence to the contrary at the time. They were people I trusted, my bosses saying, you got to stop. You have to let this go. My agent saying, it's causing too many speed bumps in your career. You have to let it go. Even loved ones in my family saying, is this really worth it? Pointing out that I was going to risk my whole career for a story that might not even make a dent. And I have to say, I seriously considered those perspectives because I felt, well, what do I know? There was a, a low point in the midst of all of that where I just remember I hadn't slept and I had lost a ton of weight. And I was on the phone with my poor, long-suffering partner who dealt with a lot of very annoying calls with me in this period. And I was in a cab going from one meeting with a source to another. And I had just learned that I might get scooped by another outlet. And I just kind of fell apart. And I was sobbing and then trying not to sob, which made it worse. And I'm pretty sure there was like a lot of snot happening. It just wasn't pretty. And I remember saying, I swung too wide. I mean, it was actually more like, I swung too wide. <laughs> I gambled too much. I lost everything. And no one's even going to know that I did this for a year. And my partner said, OK, well, we're going to talk about all of this. But um, first, you're going to tip that cab driver really well. <laughs> the driver's name was Omar. He was very supportive. Thank you, Omar. <laughs> I didn't stop because I knew I would never be able to live with myself, for one thing, if I didn't honor the risks those extraordinary women had taken. But also, less nobly, I didn't stop because I really had gambled too much and swung too wide, and there was no way out but through. But I did start to think at times that maybe I had just made the wrong call. In hindsight, it's really easy to know whether or not your choices were the right ones. In hindsight, you know whether it was right to stick to your guns or right to turn the other cheek. You know whether it was right to give up on a story or right to keep going and keep fighting. 
you know, there are other stories that you get to do if you give up on one sometimes. And sometimes compromise feels like the right thing. In the moment, you don't know the outcome of any of this, though. You don't know how important a story is going to be culturally. In the moment, you don't know if you're fighting because you're right or if you're fighting because of your ego and your own sense of a, yourself as a hero in, in your story. Uh, and I thought at times that maybe that sense of ego might be clouding my judgment. But you can have a feeling. You can have an instinct, a, a gut reaction, and a little inner voice that you hear deep down, even if you're not sure. So I am standing here profoundly grateful to all of the explosion of voices that we've heard. Um, many of the, those voices are people who, I think, listened to that small voice and made the choice that wasn't necessarily the strategic one, but was the right one, despite the fact that they had no way of knowing that for sure at the time. Every person who stared down that moment of uncertainty and listened and did the right thing, those are the people that we're counting on to affect change, that are making change in real time. That's a, a theme that runs through all of the speakers that the Opera House have brought here, from the architect Marwa al-Sabuni, who literally risked her life to stay in the middle of the Syrian civil war and tell her stories of it to the world, to a commentator like Tanahasi Coates, who, as Edwina just said, it has really put himself in the line of fire to advance an important conversation about race in America and around the world. And you can find that same lesson of people standing up and doing the right thing and exposing the truth here in the Australian media. Lenore has done that, holding the government accountable on tough stories over and over again. And to her and anyone else in the room who's a journalist here in Australia, I thank you. Because freedom of press is not automatic. From Pakistan to Belarus to Bahrain, people in our profession die every day fighting for the truth. They are imprisoned every day fighting for the truth. And I would never compare anything that I've gone through to the extraordinary stakes those journalists face. But recent events in my country, the constant barrage of attacks on reporters, the revival of the authoritarian mantra of fake news, show us that our right to the truth is fragile even in places where we are fortunate enough to not face death or imprisonment. The free press is a privilege, and it needs to be constantly defended and protected. Constantly in our work as journalists, we face the incentive to take the easy path, the friendly path, the path of least resistance. And it's only by choosing over and over again every day to take the hard and adversarial path that we stand up for this precious institution that is so important to all of us all over the world. But the lesson of those people who stand up and let their strong senses of principle guide them and tackle tough topics goes beyond journalism. It lays down the gauntlet for all of us in every walk of life. Because right now, we are surrounded by examples of exactly the opposite, and we need to stand up to that. It's, it's a culture that we're immersed in today that tells us to kill the story instead of poking the bear but it's also a culture that tells us, regardless of our profession, to tip the scales in favor of getting paid rather than protesting. A culture that tells us not to trust that inner voice and fight. And the reason our culture sends us that, that message is we look around and we see people in our workplaces and in our communities taking that easy way out, doing the immoral thing or the selfish thing, and being rewarded. And it's easy to conclude sometimes that that's just the way it is. And probably each and every one of you, whether you are a doctor treating refugees or a financier making money off of foreclosures, and I really hope that's not your job, <laughs> I'm guessing each of you has faced some version of that, a moment in your life or your career where you have no idea what to do and where it's totally unclear what's right for you, for your family, or for your community. And now more than ever, we need people who face that moment and are guided by their own senses of principle not by the whims of a culture that prizes ambition and sensationalism and celebrity and vulgarity and doing whatever it takes to win. And I hope that the next time you face that kind of a moment, you'll trust that inner voice and fight like hell. Thank you so much, everybody. Hello, Lenore. Hi, Ronan. 
Did I butter her up enough? I'm really right for buttering up. Um, so I really want to thank Ronan for sharing those misgivings as he just did. I've never broken a global blockbuster story like he has, but I can recognize that feeling, that sick to the stomach feeling of, am I doing the right thing? Have I thought this through? Am I being fair? And I think in the case of the Weinstein story that uh, you and the New York Times broke, it was because you were, or it was probably because you were looking at this story from a slightly different perspective from the way journalists often did. I think traditionally, journalists would focus tightly in on clear allegations of sexual assault or sexual harassment, uh, ones preferably that were on the record, where there was a witness, where there'd been a police complaint at the time. Editors let those stories through really easily. Um, you had, I think, in your first story, 13 allegations of sexual harassment or assault, but around it and with it, you had all those other more complicated stories about uh, women who had been bullied into sexual relations with Weinstein, allegedly, and who felt self-loathing and self-doubt because of that, or women who had felt intimidated or felt like their careers had suffered. You built that really big picture of systemic abuse of power rather than individual cases of abuse of power. And what I wanted to ask you is whether it was clear to you from the get-go that that's what you were doing and why it was that you think you could look at it in that way rather in, than in the more traditional kind of narrower way. It's a really important framing of the issue. Uh, I would say I agree and disagree with the way you just characterized it. I mean, the stories that I've done, I've done very few, um, you know, what would now be called, I guess, Me Too stories. You know, I've, I've worked on that cycle of, I think it was five initial Weinstein pieces, um, and then uh, I spent many, many months working on this CBS story about a very powerful executive in the States. Um, and along the way, there was uh, sort of a story that fell into my lap about a powerful politician in the States. Uh, but really, I have zeroed in on fairly extreme cases mm. uh, that do sort of fall into what maybe one could accurately criticize as the trap of traditional journalistic thresholds of, okay, this has got to be really bad, and the allegations have to be quite numerous, and uh, in each of those stories, we were talking about serious criminal activity. You're absolutely right that there was further context that was introduced, mm -hmm. but it was really in service of corroborating those very extreme allegations. So, for instance, you know, you have a story like that first Weinstein piece where there are some horrendous rape allegations, and those fact patterns exhibit many similarities yes. with less serious allegations of harassment. They start in the same way, they suggest an MO. So you can bring in some of that context to corroborate. Mm. But it seemed to me that it was all of that context that kind of turbocharged the story. That meant that lots of women looked at it and related to it, even if they hadn't themselves been subject to some of the more extreme behaviours. Everyone related to it in some form. It was that sort of broad context that I thought pushed it into the zeitgeist in the way I that I think it that's exactly was. right. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the reporting is one thing, and then this follow-on movement of so many powerful voices um, standing up in such a brave way is really quite separate in a lot of ways. And, and I do think you're exactly right that what made that reporting turbocharged, to use your term, um, some really excellent activism that had already been out there for quite some time, Tarana Burke and people like that, um, doing community organizing around this issue. The reason it, it ignited in that way is because I think so many survivors of sexual violence, women and men, looked at those stories and saw commonalities. And, and you're right that a lot of that is in the less severe cases. So how do you weigh up or think through the responsibilities that you have when you're reporting these stories? So, you know, a reporter in this situation has, has an enormous amount of power over how someone's life is going to turn out, over the lives of the people who've come forward to talk to you. Um, and sometimes those judgments aren't entirely easy. You know, I mean, what would you do, for instance, if uh, you had 
a number of credible allegations, but they were all historic, and it seemed like the behaviour had completely stopped, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Do you upend an old man's life, you know, late in life, over allegations about a behaviour that seemed to have ended? I mean, I'm, I'm raising that just as an example. There's all a, these yes. value judgments that we have to make. A absolutely. I mean, th the answer is it's case by case. The question of statute of limitations and how much of a mitigating factor time is is a really complicated one that I think we're all grappling with in our societies. That's not a journalistic question so much as it is a huge cultural question and a huge criminal law question. In the United States, one of the ramifications of this moment of all of this activism happening in the last year is that many jurisdictions around my country have now changed their laws to waive the statute of limitations around the most serious forms of sexual assault. And I, I think that's born of an understanding that this particular issue brings such shame and stigma and complication that very often it takes decades for someone to grapple to with it. To feel like they can talk about right. it. Right. And, and I do think that for certain types of very serious criminal allegations, um, particularly directed at people who continue to be in a position of influence where they potentially have access to other people who could become victims um, or engender a culture where they are uh, creating impunity for other perpetrators, I do think it, it starts to become much more um, persuasive, the argument that the truth should still out. Yeah, yeah. Have you had allegations uh, raised with you that were sort of on the, on the borderline of one's of, you know, where you weren't sure whether you should pursue it or not, or you decided not to pursue it? Many, 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 many allegations. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm one person, so I can't, you might have noticed, I'm just one of me. Um, so I, I can't do all the stories that come my way, and that is not to suggest that those stories aren't very worthwhile. And, you know, one thing that I do a lot of is passing important leads to other journalists. I've been incredibly heartened by what I've seen of uh, the camaraderie in our profession over the past year. You know, reporters call me with leads that they think might be helpful and willingly surrender scoops that they themselves could have to try to help um, if they think it's the right thing for the story. Um, I, in turn, call a lot of journalists at different outlets and say, hey, here's something I can't tackle, but maybe you could. Yeah. So those same sort of systems of power that allowed powerful men to get away with this for so long, they also make it pretty hard to get these stories published, right? I mean, you alluded earlier to uh, the experience of Weinstein hiring private investigators to um, gather dirt on some of the people making accusations to follow you mm -hmm. uh, personally. You uncovered a similar uh, situation with some of the firms that people had been doing uh, work in the Obama era on the um, Iran deal. That surprised me when I read about it at the time. I, I'm not aware of that sort of thing happening here, but I couldn't say that it doesn't. Does it, is it widespread, that kind of thing? Does it work? Um, is there anything that has happened in the meantime that would deter powerful people from doing that in the future, from continuing to do it now? For me, what made the Weinstein story worth all of that that I just described. Um, you know, on top of the bravery of these sources who had done such a hard thing, it was very apparent that what they were exposing wasn't just about Harvey Weinstein or just about Hollywood. It was about a set of systems that are employed across multiple industries, across politics and culture. Um, and those are systems used by the most powerful people in the world to suppress and silence more vulnerable people. And they include hiring high-priced, exotic private investigation firms, including, um, you know, undercover agents using false identities and front companies to try to smear people. Um, hiring those same kinds of private investigation firms um, that specifically uh, promise to manipulate the criminal justice pro process. One of the stories I, I did on Harvey Weinstein was about that, the particular firms that he hired to, um, it really in a way that suggests a degree of corruption, I would say, influence the people in the New York DA's office who were considering charging him. Um, so, so those are all systems that I think we all need to look at around the world. And, and you were personally scared, right? Y yeah, you know, I, I, it's tough to talk about this stuff because as a reporter, you, you don't want to become the story. 
Um, and certainly what I dealt with was nothing compared to what all these sources dealt with. Um, you know, the, the women really were re-traumatized in a way that I think was much deeper and more extreme than anything that I could claim to have gone through. But, but yes, I do think it's, it's worth noting that, um, you know, there were multiple reporters who were followed and intimidated, and that's wrong, and we shouldn't tolerate it. Intimidated how? Well, I have a book coming out on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope we'll all read it. Um, there's also the explicit allegation which you um, uh, referred to earlier by your ex-producer at NBC that NBC blocked... Uh, see, she's, she's a news hound. She's a tough journalist. I knew, I knew this. I knew I would get Deflecting. cornered up here. Um, that, and he said that that was a massive breach of journalistic integrity. Um, is that how you see it? Well, what I've said publicly on this is uh, Rich McHugh, that producer, is a person I know to be a man of integrity, and I'm proud of the stories we did together, and I know how deeply he cared about seeing those stories through. Which doesn't answer the question. <laughs> well, I don't know if you heard, but I do have a book coming. <laughs> okay. There were also the revelations in the US that American media, so the company that runs that terrific publication, the National Enquirer, was seeking to buy and then not publish not just a couple of stories about President Trump's affairs or alleged affairs, but a whole decade's worth of dirt and stories about the president. Um, again, I find that kind of astonishing. It apparently has a name, Catch and Kill. I've not heard about that happening here either. The book is called Catch and Kill. We did not set this up. <laughs> <I promise. laughs> um, I saw a reference to this being not a legitimate press function under US campaign finance law, which is kind of great understatement, right? Like it's the <laughs> antithesis of journalis journalism. You buy a story in order to not publish it. But, but that's again, an important distinction. I mean, we have this incredible shield of the First Amendment in the United States, and no one wants to do anything to jeopardize that. I think the reason some of this investigative journalism happened is because of the robust protections of the First Amendment. Which we don't have, and our defamation laws make it really difficult to do it here. Yes, exactly, and I think as a result you see, um, you know, a stunting of adversarial investigative reporting in the UK or Australia compared to what you see in the States, and there's just no way around that, and it's tragic, because you need those tough stories to see the light of day here, too, to shape mm. policy. Um, but that said, while there are all these protections for what media organizations decide to run and don't run, um, there are, importantly, exceptions under US law for a media company that is not acting as a journalistic institution. Which that clearly isn't. Right. I, I think that uh, it is very likely that the disposition of any legal questions on that will be that the National Enquirer, which was engaged in blackmailing and breaking a lot of laws and uh, killing stories at the behest of a candidate as part of a secret deal, was not acting as a legitimate news outlet. And obviously Maybe. more evidence of powerful men helping other powerful men avoid accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of this requires uh, media organizations to give journalists the time and space to do these kind of investigations. And right now, the number of media organizations that can actually do that is diminishing. I mean, it's not the subject of today's conversation, but you know, the media is in a kind of crisis. You said you spent a year on this story. There's very few publications that could afford to allow a journalist to spend a year on a story at The Guardian. We do try to have proper investigative uh, capabilities, but um, there's a lot of places where that just isn't possible. Lots of small towns where there would be abuses of power and there's no newspapers left there at all, or local councils where there's huge abuses of power and nobody covers them. Um, this is a real problem, right? It's, it's, there's fewer journalists in fewer places to do this kind of work. Well, I'd answer that in two ways. I mean, one of the things that I've actually been um, pleasantly surprised to see traveling around the United States and talking to especially college students about this is there's actually some cracking investigative reporting happening at school newspapers. Mm -hmm. The challenges you describe are very real. It is costly work. It's time-consuming work. Um, the greatest of all the costs is 
the potential risk of litigation and companies needing to be prepared to take on that risk. Um, that requires a certain degree of fearlessness. Uh, and it requires news organizations to not be corrupt. Um, and all of those are hard things to ensure when you're dealing with you know, large, sprawling companies that, that own news outlets. That said, you don't have to look far in all of our countries to see examples of scrappy, shoestring journalism that doesn't take a lot of resources and uh, yields important outcomes. So I'm not completely pessimistic on this point. I'm not completely pessimistic either. I just, you know, my day job tells me it's tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're also in the thick of it, um, you know, trying to make these principles that I'm talking about so easily a reality. You know, I'm not managing a newspaper. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate now to, you know, I do my television work in the States for HBO, and I um, do my print pieces for The New Yorker, and those are both places that um, are in unusual positions of strength in terms of defending tough stories. Yeah. And I, I know that not everyone has that luxury. Yeah. So your life, your childhood, your life trajectory into journalism isn't the usual one, to say the least. Um, how do you think your reporting was influenced by your own life? And do you think it was helped by the contacts you had or entree you might have had because of, of who you are? I'm very grateful for any ounce of privilege that I had. And, you know, the way I, th I think about it is um, you've really got to tally up the opportunities you have, and with each one of them, it ups the ante in terms of what you got to give back. And uh, I certainly try to wield every advantage I have um, in the service of the stories I do. I would say that very often it's a double-edged sword. Um, the, the reporting I do now... Uh, you do have some people who you pick up the phone and you're trying to get someone to go on the record and they say, oh, I, I know who you are. <laughs> uh, and they, they admire the work and they care about the causes that I've written about. And so it is helpful, actually, that I have this background people know about. Um, and more and more as I do more of these stories. You also then sometimes pick up the phone and call someone and they say, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, you can't outrun your identity and your baggage and you just have to roll with it and keep your head down and do the work. Okay, so this is the most important question I've got for you. This whole Me Too movement, the most important question, the whole me, this whole me, me Too movement, how do you think it is going to go down in history? How different will my daughter's lives be from my life, will they feel able to call out behavior that my generation of women just kind of put up with? Is it going to be an actual step change, do you think? Well, this is, I hate to disappoint you, exactly the kind of question that I, I really don't have answers on. Um, and I actually think it's specifically not my job to have answers on. Well, I don't think you can predict the future, but you've been kind of living this thing, so you must have an idea sure. about what and, you and, and I will, I will give you a thought, I promise. I will not let you down on the most <laughs> important question. Um, but but I, I, I guess I'm making a different point, which is, um, you know, I think someone like a Tarana Burke would would have really worthwhile thoughts on that mm. because she is sure. engaged in the day-to-day -day community organizing and really has wrapped her arms around the forward momentum of a, a cultural movement. My job is very distant from all of that. So these massive questions about cultural ramifications um, are not ones that I'm wrapped up in necessarily because I'm not doing activism on this. I'm doing journalism. And um, some of that journalism is about issues of sexual abuse and the abuse of power around the Me Too movement. Um, some of it is political journalism and financial journalism. You know, it crosses a lot of different genres. Um, but in all those cases, I'm much more concerned with, okay, what's happening in this moment to journalism? That said, I would say on this specific issue of um, sexual violence and sexual harassment, we've already come far enough that we're not going to see a complete rolling back of the clock. I think that um, already it's a very different environment for someone who is grappling with whether to come forward with a mm -hmm. difficult allegation. Already 
incrementally, slowly, we're seeing certainly in the United States uh, changes in some of the legal doctrines with how we handle non-disclosure agreements, with how companies approach this issue. Uh, the training is changing, the understanding is changing. Uh, I do think that's significant. I'm grateful for it. You know, when I think of any kids I might eventually have, I, I like seeing that those changes are happening. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but we've come quite far. And people who may have been systemically abusing their power will probably have pause for thought. I hope so. Um, so, I wanted to move on to your book. Also, I'm continuing to report. <laughs> they should ser seriously pause. All right. <laughs> um, so I wanted to come on to your book, War on Peace. I'll wave it around because, you know, having written books myself, publishers love it when you wave it around. Thank you for the book, Wade. Um, <laughs> so that's a journalist doing a solid <laughs> journalist. It's about the exercise of a different kind of power, about the steady erosion of diplomatic power and diplomacy, more book waving, uh, in the United States. It starts, to my mind, somewhat terrifyingly with the sacking of the most senior and experienced diplomat responsible for disarmament and arms control soon after President Trump came to office. And then it kind of tracks back and puts that all into the context of the decline in, in the power of the State Department over several administrations. At the end, someone actually describes it as a kind of unilateral disarmament. America just kind of giving away a tool it had to influence the world. There's a very live debate here in Australia at the moment about the consequences of all of that, particularly in this region, and particularly given that at the same time, uh, China's diplomatic efforts are increasing. Mm. Um, what do you think that, how do you think that's likely to play out? What does it mean, this? what you describe here, the decline in diplomacy, what does it mean for the, the world, but particularly this region? The United States is radically altering its profile in the world. When we sack diplomat after diplomat and have an empty State Department and empty embassies around the world, and China, as you said, is doubling down on spending on diplomacy and becoming not just a military power, but a negotiating power, that changes our interactions with all of our allies. And, you know, we already see the ramifications of that trend of America not having the capacity to negotiate as much um, and surrendering the, the initiative of trying to come to the negotiating table, um, colliding with the isolationism of the Trump administration. And, and you see us, you know, pulling out of important trade deals with very important ramifications for Australia. Um, you see us not launching the kinds of infrastructure projects that young people all around this part of the world, I mean, many of your neighboring countries, mm -hmm. certainly all around um, East Asia, um, are, are seeing from China. You know, I have personally talked to so many kids around the world who know that China is reshaping their culture and don't have that sense of leadership from the United States. So this has far-reaching implications. And I, I, you know, I think back home, it's heartbreaking as an American to see this because war should not be our tool of first resort. The reason we have this balance of power where the military is incredibly important and they do heroic work to protect us, but also we have diplomats who maybe keep us out of wars is because that can save lives. And if we empower diplomats, history shows us it can end wars and maybe prevent them in the first place. And we just are not empowering them anymore. And if you are a country a natural ally of the United States, looking at that and trying to reconfigure foreign policy, what assumptions should you be making about whether this is a continuing trajectory for US foreign policy for how you position yourselves? I mean, it, it kind of changes everything. It potentially does change everything and on a multi-generational scale. When you staunch the flow of incoming diplomats, you're not just creating a short-term problem, you're also creating a problem 20 years out when those young diplomats are supposed to be becoming ambassadors around the world. You just don't have the core of professionals that keep the conversations going between countries like our two countries. So the implications are tough, they are far-reaching, they will last a long time. That said, I would say to all of our allies, you know, don't give up on us. <laughs> um, we are in a moment of foreign policy dysfunction, and in spite of that, 
you know, we like we apologize. There's, there's like a sign taped <laughs> over the State Department saying, you know, we apologize for the maintenance that's happening. Um, <laughs> in spite of that, there are hardworking professionals in the American diplomatic corps um, who are still in their jobs, who are toughing it out. Many of their stories are told in this book. Mm. They can be heartbreaking stories at times, but some of them are, are in there fighting the good fight. And uh, the conversations between nations will continue even with these challenges. And I think we will eventually have leadership that champions those hardworking public servants. So that's the question, right? How long the moment lasts for? How long those hardworking public servants can continue to work hard if there were if there was a second term for an administration not much interested in multilateralism, and that, what do we that could easily reconfigure everything, yes. right? Yes, and, and how different does the world look um, you know, with a, a Chinese set of ethics and priorities rather than um, an American one? And I, you know, I don't argue that America's priorities are perfect. I highlight plenty of examples of uh, the way in which they have been dysfunctional for the mm. world in this book. But uh, I do think that there are far worse perils that could be afoot if we completely surrender America's connections to its allies. But you do sort of start from the starting point with those caveats that um, America is more or less a force for good in the world. But if there's an administration that wants to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, uh, a president that's threatening to pull out of the WTO, not much interested in NATO, mm. um, isn't going to come to the um, East Asia Summit or APEC, hasn't got ambassadors, as you say, in many countries, not just here, but countries you'd think America would need an ambassador, like, I know, Turkey or Saudi Arabia. Is that necessarily true? If, if there's an administration that just really isn't interested in multilateralism at all? I still fiercely believe that American leadership uh, has vast potential to do good for the world um, and that there are examples you can point to that illustrate that. And there are some of those good examples in this book, too. And Examples now? In recent history. And <laughs> it is true. Look, under this, <laughs> under this administration, um, there have been uh, a number of cases where we have distanced ourselves from the international community in a problematic way. I mean, you mentioned pulling out of the Paris Climate Change Accord, um, rolling back the Thon relations with Cuba. Um, you know, it goes on and on. And, you know, I think you see with the deprofessionalization of American diplomacy, a lot of new pitfalls opening up, too. Uh, you see, for instance, you know, someone like Jared Kushner taking meetings with the Chinese without anyone present to observe. That opens up the possibility that uh, the other side is going to manipulate the account of what happened there. It opens up the possibility that there is sort of under-the-table exploitation happening. Um, we know that uh, China has undertaken influence campaigns against people in this administration, and uh, it's very troubling to see us step away from our usual standards of professionalism. So the problems are real, but I, I do think that we all want to look twice at what the world looks like without that American influence, as imperfect as it may be. I think that the alternatives that we look at right now are quite dangerous. I mean, we're not looking at Angela Merkel stepping into the fray and sort of taking over the mantle of, of what America once did. We're, we're looking at that same leadership coming out of Beijing. And, you know, I, I, I'd be careful not to oversimplify that either. This, there are great things China brings to the table, but I think we'll also see a lot of problems that we're not necessarily grappling with right now. Although China is playing a constructive role in the Paris climate talks. They, very much. I think there, as I just alluded to, there are multiple cases where China in the process of taking up that mantle of diplomatic leadership has done some good things. I mean, a great example is I wrote, uh, you know, what, what would this have been, 2006, 2007, in the mid-aughts about um, how pernicious Chinese influence was in Sudan. Mm -hmm. so that was one of the classic examples of China came in, they were sort of these, they fit the stereotype a lot of people in American foreign policy have of China, of the rapacious interloper. They came in, they took the oil, they aided and abetted a genocide that was happening, and they didn't care about it. Um, now you see the Chinese actually actively doing shuttle diplomacy and sending an envoy to try to broker peace agreements in that region. Um, Afghanistan, there's been a, a very similar transformation. Yeah. So none of this is simple or black and white. You know, I don't think this is America good, China bad. Um, and I try in this book to paint a, an honest picture of the ways in which, despite all those complications, we still want to pull America back from the brink of this isolationist trend.
-hmm. And the, it's not unrelated to a more general sort of hollowing out of expertise, right? I mean, uh, in America, and I think to some extent here, um, expertise experts are kind of being devalued yeah. a bit, you know? Yeah. So we don't listen to climate scientists on climate anymore. We don't, we have fewer expert bureaucrats. Um, you know, what you're writing here is a, a part of a, of a bigger, broader picture. Yes. Would you agree? And it's a, it's a troubling one. I mean, I would, I would be interested in your take. Why is that happening in Australia? Um, I think that there's been, um, that, well, the bureaucracy has been uh, underfunded. Uh, lots of things have been contracted out. There's been a sort of an ideological view that uh, contractors and, and privatised um, groups can do the job better, but of course they come in and they're gone and there's no sort of institutional memory in the bureaucracy. And um, over time, that means governments get poor advice. And politically, do you sense what I certainly sense in the United States, that there is this... Um, you know, strain of nationalism that gets weaponized against experts? Less so here, to an extent, but uh, less so. I mean, we haven't yet had um, politicians, or not much, had politicians calling news stories they didn't like fake when they were clearly factual. So the, I mean, that's, I guess that's what I'm most fearful of, the idea that all those guardrails of the civic discourse what, what's fact and what's fiction, what's, what's expert and what's not, are kind of dissolving, particularly in, in the States. I think um, Edwina began by saying, we're all screwed. <laughs> Seems like we're coming back to that sentiment. A little bit. I mean, let's get back to a little optimism. Yeah, yeah, well, well we can. Um, and I think to, to get back to the op optimism, I'd like to sort of come back around to the discussion of journalism, because that's what we do, right? I mean, that's the thing that journalism brings to the table, both in terms of the Me Too stories, in terms of the, uh, the stories that you write about in your book, is sticking up for facts and factual debate. Um, I think that's the power of what we do. I think so too, and I'm so grateful for what I see in the press, certainly in the States. I, I think from what I see less closely abroad, this is happening internationally as well, that in a moment of crisis where our profession is embattled and in many countries there are these attacks on the press, um, reporters are rallying and doing better work than ever and are really illustrating why in the United States journalism is the only profession with an explicit constitutional protection. Um, this is a branch of how we ensure accountability in our culture. And I think the tough enterprising work that's happening now illustrates that and is the best possible response to those attacks. And circulation of trusted news um, sources is going up. Yes. I, I think that the you know, rumors of my profession's death have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I, I think we're in a really vibrant place. There are challenges. There are vast transformations happening. You know, I started as a television broadcaster and that space for the middle of the day headline reader is certainly contracting in the United States and, you know, TV executives are struggling to figure out what's the next thing and what do we do about this. But the underlying desire for long, deep, tough storytelling is stronger than ever. You know, you, in the States, certainly, we are in the midst of a podcast gold rush. You see things like Serial, you know, just taking off like gangbusters. Um, there's a huge boom in the documentary space. People want these stories. And I think the, um, you know, prognosticators on Wall Street who said, you know, the kids want tweets. They just want tweets. Make everything shorter. Make everything less deep. We're wrong. Like, no, the, the kids want really deep stories. Like, give, give them good storytelling. Without wanting to rain on this sort of parade of optimism, which I don't entirely disagree with. Um, <laughs> Why you got to bring us down, Lenore? <laughs> we are in Australia sitting in one of the most concentrated media markets in the world, much more so than the United States, which is a challenge here. And it's about to get worse, mm. that concentration. So, I mean, that is a real issue. And the, the, the financing model of the media is... Uh, shall we politely say, in flux. We're working that out. And I do think we'll find a way through it, but it's, um, it's not easy. That doesn't mean we aren't doing good work. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It's just 
it's kind of a tricky time. You're absolutely right, and uh, you know, I, I joke, but it's important to confront those tough issues. Um, there are a lot of challenges ahead. Um, and certainly consolidation in the media world is problematic. Um, I've seen firsthand the ramifications when you have uh, you know, layers of mega corporations uh, at the reins with this kind of sensitive storytelling. Uh, it gets to be really tough. And as you have fewer and fewer players and fewer and fewer places to um, you know, ensure that there's a competitive aspect that keeps people honest, uh, the space for the kinds of hard stories that we're talking about today does shrink. And I think we've all got to stay vigilant, and each and every one of us here should subscribe to the newspapers that we read, you know? if you're Guardian Australia. Yes, like, give... I know The Guardian has, has made a lot of waves with its business model. Give to The Guardian. <laughs> subscribe to The New Yorker. Yes, <laughs> we do. Yeah, it's, it's important. And, um, and we can all do our part to make sure that, you know, the next time we click a link and it's to a deep, thorough piece of reporting and we like it, just... Subscribe to that paper. Give, give it as a gift to someone. We can all play our part here. And is that where you're, you've been talking a bit about your next book, but is that where it's going to looking at the, the threats to journalism? Is that part of it? It's a big part of it. I mean, it's called Catch and Kill precisely because it looks at these vast systems that have come to light over the past year uh, that for so long enabled powerful people to manipulate the media. Beyond the buying and putting in the vault of stories. What, what other vast systems? I hope you'll all buy the book. Oh, just <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we've, we've certainly, we've had, a, I think, an increasingly honest conversation in the States about the vault, as you refer to it, of people like Donald Trump using news organizations to actively buy the rights to and silence um, people's stories. Uh, you have dirty relationships between powerful people and news organizations. You have, um, you know, acts of blackmail and intimidation. I mean, there are a lot of tools that have been used to make sure that the truth doesn't see the light of day. And I hope one of the long-term ramifications of this moment is that we see a little bit less of that. And so your book will go to sort of explicit examples of all of that. I'm looking forward to this book. <laughs> She's tough. Look at, look at her. Look at her dangling that bait. <laughs> Look at him not taking it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, adversarial journalism <laughs> on this stage. Um, look, I would like to uh, very much thank Ronan Farrow for talking to us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Um, thank you, Lenore. Thank you for all you do supporting an important publication. And I'm very, I am actually very much looking forward to your next book, and I very much enjoyed his last one. Please join me in thanking Ronan thank Farrow. You. Thank you, everybody. That was Ronan Farrow, and he was talking with Lenore Taylor at Antidote 2018. In next week's episode of Ideas at the House, we'll hear from Baltimore's finest, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates, in an excellent and genuinely moving conversation with the ABC's Richard Feidler. In the meantime, jump on our YouTube channel to watch videos with other Antidote guests, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>